Uh, we are officially in the season of Lent. So this past Wednesday was Ash Wednesday, which starts the season of Lent. Lent is 40 days of preparing for Holy Week and the death of Jesus. Lent is a season that is characterized by giving up and taking up. Usually you might hear somebody say, what did you give up for Lent? Giving up is a way for us to create space to increase our sensitivity to God and his moving and working in our life and in our, in our world. And we take up practices as well to do the same thing. So for us as a church, we have some practices for you and resources. So back there on that table, there is a candle burning, similar to the candle that we had in Advent, if you were here in Advent. So we're asking for a $5 donation for the candle. Um, Due to a generous donor, we're able to give it to you at that cost. Um, And the practice with the candle is that you would light the candle every morning and that you would say these Lenten prayers. So back there as well is this. So this is, uh, we'll say this is the front side. So over on this side is the prayers for Lent. So there's a morning and there's an evening prayer. That's what we prayed at the beginning of our service. And then on this side is the Beatitudes as well. So turn it over and there's a weekly calendar. So each day throughout the week, we have five different practices that you can do throughout the week. These, some of these practices take 60 seconds. They're not too encompassing, but this is a way for us to do something together. Lent is a season where we are moving forward as a community. This is not a season of isolation, but it is a season of, for us to prepare for the death of Jesus. We focus on our need for Jesus, our need for a Savior. Similar to Advent and the anticipation of Jesus, the longing for the light to come into the darkness, this is similar, similarly what we are doing here. So we prepare for 40 days of Lent. One thing that we will do together as a church on Sundays is, if you notice over here, our communion table is empty. We will be abstaining from communion throughout Lent as well. Another reason for this is to create that anticipation, to create that longing, all the way to the point to where the next time we take communion will be Easter Sunday. It will be celebratory, there will be toast, there will be clinking of glasses. And so this is a small way for us to, as a community and as a group of people, Practice something together. So, that is Lent. Welcome. Growing, growing up, you maybe can think of a place that you loved. Maybe it's a place you can think of right now. Whatever it is, think of, I want you to think of your favorite place. It might be a city that you travel to. It might be mountains. It might be a friend's house. It might be your own home, a family member's house. Whatever it, whatever it is, Think of the place that you love the most. I imagine it's some kind of mixture of nostalgia, some kind of mixture of experience, of relationships, of beauty. Whatever that place is, I want you to think about it. For me, it's this place called Ice Lake Basin. It's in southwest Colorado. It's just outside of Silverton. And it is beautiful. One of the first times that I've ever been to Ice Lake, this was what it looked like. It was the end of May, And while this is a black and white picture, it looked very similar to this. It's still snowy. The lake is frozen. And on this particular day, we were up in the clouds. We're close to 12,000 feet when you're in the upper basin. It's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to. And so when this was in 2009, I was working at a summer camp, and we were looking for places to go backpacking to take kids backpacking. And so this was a, a place that we were scouting out to take kids to. 
Now, this hike is, is not necessarily an easy hike. It, the trailhead starts at around 9,000 feet, and to get to the lake, it's only about two and a half miles, but you gain about 2,000 vertical feet in those two miles. So imagine taking middle schoolers and high schoolers that are from Texas and Oklahoma and Florida straight up to 12,000 feet. Now, this is actually one thing that I really loved to do because I loved to get people out into nature. The first climb was about a mile and a half, and you'd go about 1,000 feet, and you get into this lower basin, which the lower basin, by any standard, is beautiful as well. You meander through the lower basin, and then you do the last little bit of climbing. You, you crest this hill, and this is what you look at. This lake is Powerade blue. It's beautiful. There's mountains all over, and it is just the most beautiful place I've ever been. It's this combination of beauty and getting to experience it with people, getting to show it to people that I really loved about it. Often when I think about a place of contentment or happiness or joy or goodness, I think of this place. I had the ability to go back this past summer with Kate, and this was the first time I'd been there in about 10 years or so. And I've spent close to a month up there camping, sleeping in tents, swimming in the lakes, running the trails, hiking. I've spent a ton of time up there, and it still continues to bring me joy. It still continues to be a place of awe. This is another lake that's just right next to it called Island Lake. Again, this incredible green, it's beautiful, mountains, snow. There's no place like it. When I think of a place that brings happiness and joy and satisfaction, I think of Ice Lake. One of the questions that I think humans have thought about, written about, and discussed for thousands of years is, what is the good life? What does it mean to be happy, to be content? People have written about this from Aristotle to Socrates to Plato. They've written about what is a good life. I consulted the internet, which is very reliable, and here's a definition of the good life. Living the good life means living a life that sets you free, a life that satisfies and fulfills you, that adds happiness, joy, and a sense of purpose to your life. But it also means to live a life that is worthwhile, a life that makes a contribution instead of being solely self-centered. Thank you, the internet. It's this combination of joy and happiness, but also not totally self-centered and self-absorbed that we get something and give something to other people. It's a quest that I would submit also for wealth, for some type of material possessions, for luxuries. It's a combination of wealth and stuff, but also living a life that is worthwhile, that is valuable. One of the places that we see this play out often is social media. The word that usually may accompany this is the word blessed. When we say blessed, I think we're thinking about, I feel blessed, or this is a good life, I feel content. If you do a quick search on Instagram, you'll find 121 million tags of hashtag hashtag blessed. We all have some sense of this life that is good, that is blessed, that we want. And it's quite the spectrum. It might be blessed as in, I had an amazing cup of coffee and a quiet time this morning. It might be blessed as I perfectly timed going through that yellow light and it didn't turn red. It might be blessed as I found the last parking lot at church. It's a spectrum of what it might mean. But many people have thought about this and talked about this for thousands of years. The very foundation of our country is this. Life 
liberty and the pursuit of happiness. We want to be free. We want to have this liberty, the freedom of choice. We want to pursue happiness. And this is the word, this blessed is what Jesus uses in our text tonight. Is Jesus using it the same way that we use it today or is something else happening? But before we get into that, I want to give two disclaimers about the Beatitudes. These verses that you read tonight, these are considered the Beatitudes. The first is, these are not a list of truths or commands. I know that's one thing, but it's technically two things. It's not a list of truths or commands. Now, before you go down the rabbit hole of like, Joe doesn't think the Beatitudes Beatitudes are true, hear me out for a second. What I mean by it's not a list of truths is if you, it's not a list of if you do this, then you will do this. It's also not a truthful description of how the world operates. Have you ever mourned without being comforted? Have you seen the meek inherit the earth? Or is it more like the rich and the powerful inherit the earth? Do those who extend mercy always receive mercy in return? That's what I mean by it's not a set of prepackaged truths in that way. It's also not a list of commands. At no point throughout this is Jesus commanding us to be like this. The first command comes in verse 11 later on, and the command is to rejoice. It's not a list of truths or commands. Now the second thing is it's not a list of rules or virtues either. Again, this is not a list of things that we are trying to be. We're not trying to be peacemakers. We're not trying to be meek. There are other places throughout Scripture where you can make that argument, but I do not think that's what Jesus is doing here. This is what N.T. Wright says about the Beatitudes. The worst mistake we can make about this famous and stunning passage is to see it as a list of rules. You've got to try hard to be poor in spirit, to mourn, to be meek, and so on. It isn't a royal, it isn't. It is a royal announcement that God is turning the world upside down, or rather the right way up. The temptation is to read the Beatitudes as a list of virtues that good people ought to have. We think we ought to try to be meek or to try to be poor, to be hungry and thirst for righteousness, to be merciful, to be peacemakers, or to be persecuted. Rather, what I believe is happening in the Beatitudes is the Beatitudes assumes that there is somebody who is already this way. Not that someone is trying to be like this, but there's someone in your community who is already this way. The Beatitudes is a radical redefinition of who belongs, and Jesus is declaring this as the kingdom of God. So with that tonight, every week we will read all of the Beatitudes, but we'll focus on one or two verses. Tonight, verse 3 and verse 10. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We put these two verses together because of simply the similarity of the kingdom of heaven. The first thing to notice is this word blessed. What does this word actually mean? There's honestly not much writing about this. The definition of blessed is simply happy. It can mean congratulations. When Eugene Peterson was doing his translation of the message, he wanted to translate it to be lucky. But he had some pushback about that and didn't win that battle. But that's this idea of blessed, to be happy. Congratulations when you are this way. Lucky are you when you are this way. Next, an important word to identify here is poor. 
And this is the Greek word and, and what is happening in this word. The first part is it means reduced to beggary, begging, asking for alms. That's something we often think of when we think of poor, someone who is financially poor. But it goes on. Destitute of wealth, influence, position, honor. Lowly affected, destitute of Christian virtues, eternal riches, helpless, powerless to accomplish an end. That's quite the definition of poverty and poor. It's not just something financial. It's spiritual. It's emotional. You, said another way, are utterly worthless. And Jesus is saying that he has come and blessed are those who are this way or who feel this way. If we go back to our definition of the good life and thinking what that is, it's radically in contrast to what Jesus is outlining here. Jesus also adds this word, spirit, saying blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Poor in spirit was, again, more so understood to be spiritually destitute in Jesus' time. This was a, not necessarily a humble-minded person. Remember, we're not reading this as a list of virtues or commands. It's not poor in spirit to be humble, but rather somebody who is spiritually destitute. This was a person that no one would ever seek out for wisdom or discernment or knowledge or intellect. This poor in spirit is an all-encompassing term. It's not simply something that's just limited to being financially poor. The way that Peterson translates it in the message is this. He says, blessed are you when you are at the end of your rope. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like you are at the end of your rope? You can't handle one more disappointment. You can't handle one more loss. You can't handle one more setback, one more broken relationship. When you're in this place, this is when Jesus is saying that you belong the most in the kingdom of heaven. It's not when you have it all together. It's not when you're doing all of the Lenten practices perfectly. It's not when you're fasting. It's not when you're praying. Those are not the times. It's when you feel like you belong the least is actually when you belong the most. When you feel like you belong the least, you belong the most in the kingdom of heaven. Can you see how Jesus is radically redefining what it means to belong, specifically what it means to belong within a religion? As we lead up to Jesus' death throughout Lent, I believe that this passage and then the Sermon on the Mount is a very clear representation of why Jesus was killed. This was radical. This was something that was not just proclaimed here, but his life lived this way, leading up to his death. Now, in contrast, we have these writings. These are Jewish writings that are around 200 BC. This is called the Sirach. And here are 10 things that they and these writings say are blessed. So, here we go. There are nine who come to mind as blessed, and the tenth whom my tongue proclaims. The man who finds joy in his children. This is the first one. Blessed is the man who finds joy in his children. So, You have to be a man, and you have to have children in order to be blessed. I just slid into this about a month ago, the child part, not the man part. I've been a man for a while. So the first is, you have to be blessed as a man who finds joy in his children. The next, blessed, the one who lives to see the downfall of his enemies. This belongs to the one who is strong, who is victorious, or as the great philosopher Chris Bridges, also known as Ludacris, said, all I do is win no matter what. You conquer your enemies. 
Happy, the man who lives with a sensible woman. Again, this is a man, not just a man who is married, but a man who has a great wife, who is sensible, who is a servant, who pleases all of your needs. Next, blessed is the one who does not plow with an ox and a donkey combined. How embarrassing that must be when you have to plow with an ox and a donkey. But what I think this is saying is, again, you are wealthy. You are successful in business. Again, all you do is win. Happy the one who does not sin with the tongue, who does not serve an inferior. This person is in charge. Happy is the one who finds a friend. They're influential. They're connected. Blessed is the one who speaks to attentive ears. People listen to this man when they speak. They're eloquent. They're intelligent. How great is the one who finds wisdom. He's not only intelligent, but he is wise and discerning. And last, none is greater than the one who fears the Lord. This was the understanding of the blessed life. This was the understanding of God's favor. God's favor was connected to wealth and to power. Most, if not all, of these blessings are limited to wealthy men. There's no room for the poor in spirit. There's no room for the persecuted. And so Jesus has come and he is completely turning the system upside down. If you find yourself blessed, then you are likely farther away from God than you may think. And if you feel like you are far from God and far from being blessed, you are actually closer than God. Now this last verse, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A quick teaser on righteousness. We'll talk about it much more in the the verse that says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But a quick note on righteousness. Two things. This is not righteousness in the sense of personal piety that we may often think of. This is also not righteousness in like a legal, forensic, right standing with God. Like a justification that we may think of from a holdover from Martin Luther when we think of Romans and Paul writing. In the sense of a courtroom, we are legally guilty, but God has imputed his righteousness to us. I don't think that's what's happening here. Rather, this word righteousness has a richness throughout the Old Testament that we'll, again, unpack more in a little bit. But this righteousness is closely tied to justice. Righteousness in the sense of living rightly. Living in a world that is chaotic, trying to live rightly and to bring order. It is to rectify an injustice. And that's what I believe Jesus is saying here. Blessed are those who are persecuted because they are trying to rectify injustice. And theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now this one is hard for me because I haven't experienced persecution. And I likely will never have to experience persecution. But billions of Christians throughout history and around the world find them place where they are persecuted on a regular basis. So when I come to this, one thing that I have to do is I have to to move outside myself and try to find someone I can resonate with that has some kind of experience of persecution. This is a guy, his name's Oscar Romero. He's a a Jesuit priest that was born in the early 1900s, and he lives in El Salvador. And in the the 70s, he became the Archbishop of San Salvador. And at this time in the 70s, El Salvador was racked with violence and oppression and persecution for Christians. It was racked with political tension. And so this is a, a fairly lengthy description, but this gives you an idea of what they were living through at this time. This was the late 70s and 80s. 
In less than three years, more than 50 priests have been attacked, threatened, calumniated. I looked that up. It means spoken falsely of. Six are already martyrs. They were murdered. Some have been tortured and others expelled from the countries. Nuns have also been persecuted. The archdiocesan radio station and educational institutions that are Catholic or of a Christian inspiration have been attacked, threatened, intimidated, and even bombed. Several parish communities, representatives of the church, or I'm sorry, several parish communities have been raided. If all this had happened to persons who are the most evident representatives of the church, you can guess what has happened to ordinary Christians, lay ministers, and to the ecclesial-based communities. There have been threats, arrests, tortures, murders, numbering in the hundreds and thousands. But it's important to note why the church has been persecuted. Not any and every priest has been persecuted. Not any and every institution has been attacked. The part of the church that has been attacked and persecuted is that that put itself on the side of the people and went to the people's defense. Here again, we find the same key to understanding the persecution of the church, the poor. Here we find the perfect combination of these two verses. Someone who has a radical love and commitment to righteousness, to rectifying injustice towards the poor. Someone who, at times, I suspect, felt poor in spirit. Felt that he was at the end of his rope, combating powerful empires, while he was just a measly archbishop. He had a radical love for the poor. And because of this, he experienced persecution for pursuing righteousness and justice. On March 24th of 1980, Romero was facilitating a mass in a hospital chapel. And the hospital was a hospital for people who were terminally ill. He finished his homily. He walked across into the center and a car drove by and fired a shot and he was dead. He was assassinated because of his outspoken love and care for the poor, because of his devotion for Jesus. The next week, they estimate that nearly a quarter of a million people from around the world came to his funeral. He had this infectious way of being with people. This is what he says about the Beatitudes. Even when they call us mad, when they call us subversive and communist and all the epithets they put on us, we know we only preach the subversive witness of the Beatitudes, which have turned everything upside down. The Beatitudes are turning everything upside down. They are radically redefining what it means to belong in the kingdom of heaven. But if I'm being honest with myself, I don't see myself in either of these two verses tonight. I'm certainly not financially poor. There are times when I feel like I'm at the end of my rope, but that is not a normal disposition for me. I'm certainly not persecuted. I live in one of the wealthiest countries in the history of the world, and I am a cisgender, straight, white male. That is the definition of privilege. I do not experience persecution or any kind of discrimination or racism or sexism or anything like that. My life looks a lot more like the blessings found in the Jewish writing than the list of people that are found here in the Beatitudes. So throughout the series, if you find yourself in this position where you may not feel like you are the meek, you may not feel like you are the peacemaker, 
let me encourage you to this posture. I believe that it is our responsibility to listen to and to align ourselves with those who find themselves in these positions. To follow the way of Jesus, as we go out the doors of our church, out the doors of our home, we can immediately find those who are poor in spirit. All we have to do is walk a few blocks down to Colfax. We can walk through the halls of Denver Street School and we can meet students who are that. We can go into the rooms of motels with our friends on Jesus and Colfax and we can immediately see those who are poor in spirit. We see refugees who have fled their countries through violence and instability who live scattered throughout our neighborhood. Our neighborhood and the people in it are the greatest way to listen and to learn. We first listen to them. We hear the ways that they have been persecuted or discriminated against, ways that they experience sexism or classism, ways that they have experienced any kind of ableism. We listen to them and we align ourselves with them. Jesus was very much both poor and poor in spirit and very much persecuted to the points where he was wrongfully executed. And so I believe as we follow the way of Jesus, this is a posture for us to have, to listen to and to align ourselves with those who are here in the Beatitudes, especially when we don't necessarily find ourselves in these pages.